Hello and welcome to European Pharmaceutical Reviews podcast. In this episode, we're discussing the three-dimensional 3D printing of pharmaceuticals with Sheng Qi, Professor of Pharmaceutical Material Science and Technology at the University of East Anglia, Simon Gaysford, Professor of Pharmaceutics at University College London, and Clive Roberts, Chair of Pharmaceutical Nanotechnology at the University of Nottingham. Sheng's research primarily focuses on gaining a fundamental understanding of pharmaceutical materials and processes, including 3D printing, and using the knowledge to aid product development. She is also the founder of the Point of Care 3D Printing Research Group that connects university expertise with East of England Regional National Health Service partners. Simon's research group explores and develops applications of 3D printing technology in the development and manufacture of better performing medicines, as well as characterizing pharmaceutical products with thermal methods and isothermal microcalorimetry. Finally, Clive's research is in the application of novel analytical and formulation strategies to develop new medicines and biomedical devices. One of his key priorities is the exploitation of novel manufacturing routes for formulation manufacture, in particular based around 3D printing. My name is Hannah Balfour. I'm the science writer at European Pharmaceutical Review, and I will be your host today. So hi, Sheng, Simon and Clive. Thank you so much for joining me today. So to kick us off, Simon, could you briefly explain what is 3D printing? I certainly can. So um, thanks for having us. Very nice to be here. So I normally say to students when we talk about 3D printing, that when you think about how objects are made conventionally, you'd start with a block of something like a block of wood or metal, and then you remove material, say with a saw or a mill or something like that. So conventional manufacturing, you remove material and so it's subtractive. 3D printing turns that paradigm on its head. And so you start with nothing and the printer adds material. So it's often called additive manufacturing because the printer is adding material only where you want your object to be. So you start with nothing, build it up. We build objects layer by layer. I'm sure your listeners have seen images of 3D printings working. So build everything up layer by layer. And the reason it's important is because this type of manufacturing allows us to make shapes and geometries which are completely unmakeable with subtractive manufacturing. Great. Thank you very much, Simon. And why should we apply 3D printing in pharmaceutical manufacturing? Sheng, what are the benefits of it? Okay, so there are two streams of applications of 3D printing for pharmaceutical manufacturing. So they are quite different. So if we start with actually the idea of 3D printing, was first, um, you know, started in 1970. So it's actually not something new. It has been here for a long time. The reason it wasn't a hot topic before, it was because they are all patented technologies. So it's going to be very expensive to use them. Only since, so 2009-ish, a lot of patents has expired. And that made a lot of printer being very accessible. So that's linked to one of the stream of application I'll be talking about, which is research-based. So now you can get a printer used to be tens of hundreds of thousands of pounds, now will be a few thousands. 
So the first stream of 3D printing is one type of um, a process which in 1990s is invented by the scientists in the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and basically kind of using a binder on top of the powders and um, there's one and only um, regulatory approved 3D printing pharmaceuticals and is using this particular type of technology. But that is still the same as doing tableting, it's producing a mass batch of uh, tablets, hundreds of thousands, and they will distribute across the world. But the second stream of application of 3D printing in medicine or manufacturing medicine is more in the personalized medicine. So this is still a very, very active research field in the past five to seven years has been growing really rapidly. It's because, like Simon said, you can really tailor make the stuff you want to make using 3D printing. So in the sense of pharmaceuticals, you can make the dose which that particular patient needs. As well, you can tailor the shape to fit the patient's preference or, you know, make a different geometry to make sure your medication can release the drug when it's getting to the body at the right rate. So it will be really good for patients who, for example, with rare diseases or pediatric patients normally cannot take conventional medicine or a patient has disease which, you know, at the initial stage of establishing the treatment, they need a lot of titration of their doses. So, so there are two streams of applications of 3D printing. Thank you. And uh, what are some of the key technologies, Clive, that are actually applied in the 3D printing of pharmaceuticals? Thanks, Anna. And, and like Simon and Shane said, it's a pleasure to join you today, to join Simon and Shane. So I think one of the really exciting things, I mean, Simon's talked about additive manufacturing, the way we make uh, materials using 3D printing. But in fact, there's many, many different sort of methodologies we can use behind that. So Shang has already referred to one, which is where we take powders and then we use a binder to build those together to make, for example, a tablet. Um, what's really exciting, we can actually process materials in very different ways. So sometimes, for example, we could essentially do an inkjet printer. So the sort of printer that you're used to having on your desk, which fires tiny little droplets out, normally to form some letters or something or a picture on a page but we can use that to make three dimensions. So build it up drop by drop, giving us very high resolution. Or we can extrude materials, a little bit like sort of icing a cake. So we kind of make a paste and then we squeeze that out. And again, we can add those layers by layers, just as if you're icing a cake, and you can build a three-dimensional object. Or there are even more exotic ways where we can use light to polymerize a liquid. Uh, in a specific place and again build an object up layer by layer or even more recently in a simultaneous event of just building the three-dimensional object out of liquid. So really exciting movements in the technology. What that means is that however we want to formulate a medicine that there are lots of options we have not only the design that we want to get to but the materials and the process we use. So for example if we have a drug which is very sensitive to temperature we can use a process which does not use temperature. If we have a drug that we want very precise dosing, uh, we might want to use inkjet printing because we've got those tiny droplets. If we have a drug that we want to put into a paste, maybe to make a special kind of formulation, then we can use the extrusion printing. So just like modern medicines are made by many different processes, 3D printing itself has many different processes in, which gives us as pharmaceutical scientists many options uh, to achieve that final object and that personalised object that Shane was talking about, which is really exciting to us. 
Absolutely. And personalised medicine is such a key area of the field um, in all diseases at the moment. So, Shane, you mentioned that there is only one proved medicine that is 3D printed. How close are we to actually using 3D printing in commercial manufacturing more generally? Or is it still, for the most part, a research tool? Well, as I said, so the there are already one, um, you know, regulatory approved um, medicine are manufactured using 3D printing um, process, and that's in 2015. So it has been there for quite a few years. So we do have commercial products manufactured using 3D printing. If we are talking about Simon Clive talked about more personalized approach, you are producing much smaller uh, batches of product, and they are for you know, specific patients. Um, I think we're getting close. We actually did a, a quiz um, before Christmas uh, with a, a big audience for the Academy of Pharmaceutical Science and asking audience how many years they think eventually this personalized 3D printing manufacturing would reach the clinic. And we have um, a guess from five years the whole way, you know, to 20 years. So I actually do not know how quick that will be. I think Simon and Clive definitely will have a better idea than I do. Uh, so I pass on to them. Well, I was going to say that we went to the MHRA. So that's the body that governs medicines in this country. And we went to see, I think it was called the Event Horizons team, something like that. They scan the pharmaceutical field. and They're looking for technologies that might be coming through. And the reason they do that is because when you take a product to them and you say, I'd like to sell this to people, they have to know what sort of questions to ask to, to make sure you're selling a sensible product. And that was a very interesting conversation because there are some really big issues with printed products, especially if they're going to be personalised. And so I was just going to follow up some of the things that Sheng said. There's, there is one uh, medicine that's available, which is Thrytam, but there are some other products that are already made with 3D printing that your listeners might not be aware of. So you can get uh, gum shields for your teeth to align your teeth back into shape. Those are made with 3D printers. You can get a hearing aid, so they'll take a, a mould of your ear and then the hearing aid cover is 3D printed, so it's matching your the shape of your ear. So there are some medical applications, but we're not yet into the field of drug delivery from those uh, devices. And so the main issue from the regulator's point of view was how you do a clinical trial when your manufacturing process can make an infinite number of doses. So at the moment, you would bulk manufacture two or three dose strengths and you do clinical trials on those. But a printer could potentially make an infinite number of doses. How do you do an infinite number of clinical trials? So one of the things they were thinking about was bracketing. So you go for the extremes of dose and you kind of hope you've got a linear response in the middle. And the other really big one, in every time I talk about 3D printing to our students, the first question they ask me is, oh, does that mean we'll be able to print medications at home, sir? Will my grandmother be able to print her own medication? And so I can sort of see a future where we've got uh, 3D printers in a pharmacy. I think having them in your grandmother's house is quite a, more than 20 years away, but certainly in a pharmacy. And then you've got this issue about um, traceability in manufacturing, because you can make the raw, the raw feedstock for the printer. That can be made in the GMP facility somewhere. But you've got to ship that out and then the pharmacist is actually turning that printer feedstock material into the final dosage form. And so that really matters whether that is considered by the regulator as um, a manufacturing step or uh, to use an American term, a compounding step. If it's a compounding step, I reckon we will get um, to the point where we've got printers in pharmacies within the next decade. 
if it's considered a manufacturing step, I think it's going to be a bit harder because the pharmacy itself will then become part of the manufacturing supply chain and would have to operate to the same principles. So I think there are some pretty big issues with implementation and they're not really related to the printing technology, they're related to the framework around it. I think um, it's interesting to see, as Shane pointed out, that 2015 was the, the first and only FDA approved medicine, but actually there is another product that's very close in, in the US, Triastec. And interestingly, that comes back to the conversation earlier on when we talk about different processes, because that's a melt extrusion process. So you can start to see, um, as often happens in pharmaceuticals, a fairly slow uptake until people start to see what the business model looks like. Simon's referred to the regulatory model, which is obviously a key question. There are other places that 3D printing could impact, which aren't necessarily bringing products to the market. So you could imagine, for example, clinical trial manufacture. So small batches, again, with the sliding dose that Simon was referring to. So it doesn't mean that the final product is necessarily 3D printed, but 3D printing has been used in clinical trials manufacture where much smaller batches are required. Realistically, you know, the printers could manage those kind of volumes. And I think we're all indicating that the technology, 3D printing technology itself fundamentally is very highly developed now. There are some questions remain, of course, but really it's about clinical practice, um, safety, distribution, business models. And that is where that time frame of five, 10, 20 years, because that can pass in a blink of an eye in pharmaceuticals. But there are products coming through, uh, so that's very exciting. So it sounds like um, potentially sort of clinical trial supply or those larger batch manufacturing is closer than the idea of personalised manufacturing. And Simon, you've done some work exploring using machine learning with 3D printing. So how could this actually help progress 3D printing into these sort of clinical and commercial applications? So machine learning is really looking at big data sets and it's trying to understand patterns in those data sets in a way that a human looking at those data just can't see the wood for the trees. And so it applies itself in a number of areas. And the two that we're looking at are if you take a printer that prints a polymer, for instance, there's a multitude of pharmaceutical grade polymers. And so they won't all print. We have no way of knowing what will print and what won't print. But the way that we control um, drug release rates, for instance, from our printed tablets is we choose the polymer blend very carefully. So the first way that we applied machine learning to our systems anyway, was to input all sorts of data about the polymers, molecular weight, viscosity grade, chemical groups and all that sort of stuff. And then the machine learning algorithm tries to work out which one of those uh, polymers prints well, which ones don't print well, and it tries to then predict. And so we use machine learning to predict what sort of things might print quite well. So that's one area. The other one, this is a really popular term now amongst people, is digital healthcare. It means using digital technology to, uh, to understand the whole um, healthcare and integrate it. So, so many things about he healthcare can be digitized. Even your phone, for instance, can measure your resting heart rate and blood pressure data and soon it will measure glucose levels and all sorts. So there's the whole world of data which is being digitized. And it's really about interrogating those data sets so we, so we can get an early warning if someone is going to have some sort of diabetic 
uh, blood sugar collapse, maybe an early warning of a heart attack. And so really machine learning is about interrogating those data sets and trying to predict what might happen to someone ahead of it. And also it can make a decision on what's the best medical treatment for that person. So I think there's a whole world of areas where we might apply uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence. Absolutely. So you've already touched on them. What are some of the key sort of formulation considerations when looking to apply 3D printing for pharmaceuticals? Again, it really comes back to which process that you choose to use to make your formulation. And of course, that's not a simple question in the sense of it has to encompass you know, what that final product has to look like, as well as the things like drug loading, release rates and all those other things that from the pharmaceutics perspective, that governs what the final dosage form might look like. But once we have that information, that kind of governs the 3D printing process that we're going to use. So we've all referred to things like powder type printing, paste printing, inkjet printing, and there are kind of in-betweens those there as well, or indeed a combination of printing approaches if we wanted to make um, some more complex dosage forms. But each one of those approaches has its own material formulation restrictions. You know, Simon was referring to selecting the right polymer for a, a type of printing where you want the drug mixed up with the polymer. Um, if you're inkjet printing, for example, which I'm particularly interested in, um, there are very tight constraints about the, the way the fluid flows, the rheology of it. There's a reason why inkjet printing, even normal inkjet printing, the inks are very expensive. First reason is so companies can make big profits. Uh, but the second reason is they are actually very complex fluids. They're not simple. They are very, very complex. They contain nanoparticles and lots of other things. So if I want to formulate a drug as an inkjet printed formulation, then there's some very complex and tight constraints around the formulation. If I want to use a paste, there are much less constraints. But then they're all the same pharmaceutical constraints that we're used to. For example, interaction between materials. So the drug and all the other things mustn't interact. They must be stable for long enough, which may be quite short for a 3D printed product, but there still has to be stability in the ink as well, not just the final product. Um, so there are all those kind of normal considerations on top of the printing um, constraints. Um, and I fully agree what Clive has just said. I think, you know, it is uh, the processability is one of the main considerations when you develop formulation. As an example of uh, Clive used the inject printing, you know, if it's material extrusion based printing, you have to make sure your filament you, you, you are developing can be extrudable and can be printable. And that is sometimes put on the constraint of how you formulate. Um, so I don't think I have a, too much to add. I think, you know, it is the consideration of how well your drug is compatible with the excipient and the process and how well your excipient can function, um, you know, for example, controlling the, the, the release rate, um, as well as, you know, you wanted to be able to have a good understanding and well controlled interactions between your drug and your excipients. And, you know, we never understand fully all of them, you know, even tableting being existing for so many years, there are still research being done, there is still new understanding being generated of the flow of the powders, how well you can make the best tablets, you know, so, so yeah, it is a, a keep going and continue growing field of knowledge. Yeah, I was going to say one other thing, of course, is that um, pharmaceutical grade materials, they're pretty tightly controlled, aren't they? And the regulator is very 
nervous of new and novel materials. And so I'm sure a lot of your listeners are familiar with these terms, but um, we use materials called GRASS, which stands for generally regarded as safe. And so what that means is we don't know why they're safe, but we've been using them for the last 50 years and doesn't seem to do anyone any harm. And so if you go to the regulator and you say, I want to make a tablet and it contains a grass excipient, it'll be okay. I think some of the materials we're printing are going to be very novel. And so they don't have that history of being used in humans. And so there can be a bit of reticence for the pharmaceutical industry to embrace new materials. I think that's a big challenge as well. Absolutely. And um, we had the news a little while ago of the FDA actually opening up the novel excipients um, approval pathway for just generally tableted drugs. So um, I'm sure 3D printing will introduce its own challenges. So one of the things I've been quite interested in is whether 3D printing has actually been used for biopharmaceuticals, because obviously as biologic molecules, they have their own properties, they tend to be quite sensitive to heat and degradation in other ways. So has 3D printing been applied in this area? And can you tell me a little bit about it? So I teach 3D printing of biopharmaceuticals. And I suppose one of the main issues is that it's very difficult to deliver a biopharmaceutical orally often. And so you have a formulation that is an injectable. And so in that sense, 3D printing doesn't really help but then I think that there are, there's quite a lot of bioprinters. And so bioprinters can print biological molecules and they can print cells. And so that your main application there is using the printer, probably an inkjet printer, as Clive was talking about, to seed a scaffold. So you can make a scaffold of something that you want to replicate in the body with a 3D printer. You can print it from a biocompatible sort of bone type material, and then you can seed it with a bioprinter. So I think there will be applications for printing and biopharmaceuticals. But while the biopharmaceutical is being given intravenously, I think there's probably less immediate areas of application. Yeah, I mean, I think Simon's picked on a really important point there in terms of bioprinting. Uh, and to be honest, if I was going to invest some money in a new commercial product, it's probably bioprinting. Because <laughs> I think, you know, regenerative medicine, that whole area of um, reconstruction and seeding cells is a very interesting one. And printing fits perfectly into that. I think um, just to add a little bit more to that, I mean, we certainly do have projects where we're printing proteins and sort of things which could be models of biopharmaceutical drugs into polymer implants. So the, the sort of alternative is because the oral route, as Simon pointed out, is very difficult for biopharmaceuticals. Interesting, but difficult. Whereas, you know, sort of little implants that go under the skin that you can inject, you could potentially print those um, with proteins inside. And then all the same things that Shane referred to in terms of personalization becomes viable for an implant, which is kind of interesting. But it is more complicated because proteins and other biological molecules quite often, it's not just they have to maintain their structure and their integrity and printing and putting into a matrix can be quite a challenging process. But it is certainly plausible and it's certainly very active research. But um, as, as Simon pointed out, if you're taking a biopharmaceutical as an injection, then you know, printing is about solids. So you're talking tablets or, or implants or something of that type. Great. Thank you. So moving back towards um, solids, how can altering sort of the formulation and print properties actually impact the final drug product? So, Sheng, I believe you've explored the effects of sort of porosity on drug release. Could you tell us a little bit about that work and what you found? 
So the idea behind um, our proposal of exploring the effects of porosity. So um, as Simon said, you can print whatever the structure you like. So we actually propose to print a very simple, but structures with pores. So when we say porosity, we mean how big those pores are or how many is there and maybe how they kind of arrange in relation to the position of each other. So what we want to do is we're wondering if we could use porosity as a simple design solution to generate a wide range of doses and drug release patterns from a single type of uh, feedstock. So, for example, you could use a filament or granules with a fixed 10% drug loading, but through that uh, single type of feedstock, you would be able to print tablets with a very large range of strengths of uh, you know, dose, as well as going from you know, quite rapid drug release to quite well-controlled drug release. So you will save the effort of you have to design different feedstock fit different type of tablet you are trying to create. So what we find is the overall dimensions of those tablets, you know, how tall they are, how wide they are, do play a quite critical role in affecting um, the, the, the release kinetics of the drugs. And for each drug and excipient combinations, assuming we get the perfect combination from the machine learning Simon <laughs> was talking about, um, then the critical pore size, so how big um, that pore is, um, can have very different effect. So at the moment, we are working on developing similar kind of um, computational tools to simulate um, both the printing as well as the drug release behavior affected by porosity. Yeah, so it's very early study, but um, yeah, we're working on it. And it's kind of interesting you say about that because um, if you go back to sort of Simon's compounding versus manufacturing argument, if you're manufacturing the same drug product, but then just slightly altering the shape of the tablet or whatever, maybe that settles that debate a little bit more. Yeah, I think it is simplifying, um, you know, the, the supply. So you can have a, a one type of feedstock but can serve um, the purpose for a range of patients and a range of uh, type of tablets. Whether we could eventually achieve it is, is another question, but we're working on it. Absolutely. And Clive, I was reading your paper on printing multi-material personalised dosage forms. So could you tell us a little bit about this and um, why it's so important? It's actually worked from quite some time ago, but really, you know, one it's picking up one of the potential advantages of 3D printing and that sort of whole personalisation space but also the complexity of the formulation you can make. So it was really a sort of demonstration of the sort of, um, as far as we could take the technology at the time, was we printed this sort of five drug tablet. And it really came from a conversation that we'd had some years earlier about particularly older patients who take lots of different medication. So um, there's lots of statistics about people taking, you know, average of 13 different medicines and many times a day. Could we, possibly envisage 3D printing as a way of bringing some of those medication load down, otherwise taking fewer tablets. Um, so in this case, there's five drugs in one tablet. But importantly, it's not just mixing the five drugs into one tablet, it's each one is under individual control. So you can have them in compartments, for example. So that kind of cheese wedge shape, we printed it like that. And in each compartment, uh, that drug can be under separate control. So we all refer to things like controlling dose, release rate, 
And of course, the drugs we chose was actually a realistic formulation. It was to do with cardiac care, hypertension. And now you can actually make that formulation as a capsule. You just take the powders and put the five powders in the capsule. But again, you know, what 3D printing allows you to do is much more complexity, all that individual control between the different drugs. So it's really a demonstration piece of how far you could push printing at the time. And it's important to turn around and look at that as a product, though, from a customer regulatory perspective, putting lots of different drugs together in a tablet. Under current regulation, you'd have to do clinical trials of each one of those combinations. So this is another example where regulation or our understanding of how manufacturing and regulation go together needs to evolve. And I think, you know, what's really exciting um, for me is that, you know, you can see regulation starting to change. So with the new point of care manufacturing regulation coming through here in the UK, but also in Europe and the US, you can see a recognition from regulators. So point of care manufacturing means moving the manufacturing medicine close to the patient. It's not just 3D printing. There are other technologies, but it's really important for us that, that kind of legislation comes through because it's going to allow us to push the potential of 3D printing so there are indeed clinical benefits for patients, which is ultimately what we all want, better medicines for patients. So that was the purpose of the bringing the drugs together, was to demonstrate that as one potential way forward. And I suppose with further development and future research as well, you can look at potentially combining into one dosage form, maybe drugs that in a capsule would interact poorly or maybe wouldn't mix together so well. Exactly. I think multi-material printing is really interesting because, again, it's, it's how far your mind can take you. So we can potentially, um, for example, build electronics into a device. So go back to my implantable thing. Why not print the electronics, the packaging or whatever we want all in one go? So printing we, for um, our listeners, you know, you can actually print metals, ceramics, graphene, lots of exciting materials can be printed and modern printers can bring these functionalities together in, in a single device. So it's whilst we concentrated very much on pharmaceuticals, it's really interesting to think about embedding diagnostics, sensors and other other interesting things. You know, seriously, you know, the, the ability to bring together different technologies, wearable tech, diagnostics, biomarkers, delivery through something like 3D printing, um, you know, is really exciting um, Star Trek kind of stuff. And it is not so far away, I don't think. It's something we're hearing more and more about is bringing science fiction into real life with uh, the development of cell and gene therapies, which, you know, 15, 20 years ago were just not even a consideration. And then um, now 3D printing and sort of that bedside manufacturing, decentralised manufacturing idea. So aside from sort of oral solid dosage forms, we've already touched on a few sort of applications of 3D printing in terms of implants and um, hearing aids. So could uh, Sheng, you tell us a little bit about your work on 3D printing oro dispersible films, for instance? So I think, um, yeah, it's actually not that novel, I would say, is we are actually um, using a more modified version of inject printers. The idea is you would be able to put in the personalized dose and dimensions for the patient. The drawback for inject printer um, is often it has the limitation of um, the viscosity of the 
ink they could really process. And when we do add in excipients, it does increase the viscosity of the ink. And then that often would become quite tricky to process using traditional inkjet printers. So normally in the past, there's loads of you know, publications um, and research efforts done in this field. People, including Simon as well, would do inject printing, um, but depositing drug onto another edible um, substrate. So our idea is really trying to eliminate the, the, the two step, you know, putting the drug on top of substrate and waiting them to dry. So we, we thought, um, could we do a substrate free um, oral dispersal films? So we use this um, special micro dispensing jet printing system, which we can process highly viscous um, liquid. We even can heat it up if we want to. And we printed um, oral dispersal film, uh, which we can alter and uh, change the dose and the dimension, as well as either with pour or without pour within the film. So that would allow you to change the, how quick and how slow the, the film would dissolve on your tongue. We did use a commercially available oral dispersible film as a, a benchmarking or in terms of performance. And our film seems to be perform, um, you know, as good as um, commercially available ones. So that is something we're quite excited about. And as we said, those printers, they are very portable. So that's the whole idea. If, if you're going to do something at or close to the point of care being decentralized, you do need, you know, the equipment not going to take over, uh, you know, 20 square meter space. It needs to be portable with small footprint and ideally um, as power saving um, as possible. So yeah, so that's what we did. And we hope one day this can join in a group of different types of 3D printing technologies to um, be used as one of the ways to do the, the production at or close to the point of care for patients with swelling difficulties, um, for example. Great. And uh, Clive, you've done quite a bit of research in 3D printing or drug eluting implants. So do you want to tell us a bit more about these? I mean, so I referred to earlier on, we're sort of mostly looking at subdermal injectable implants. And some of this has involved the use of novel materials. So it brings that kind of thing Simon was talking about where regulatory approval might be more tricky. But I think one piece of work I think would be nice to highlight uh, we did with the University of Reading is that they developed a polymer which um, flows when put under stress but then bonds back together when it stops flowing. So in other words there's no temperature required. We call it a self-assembling system and that was quite interesting for us because it means we could extrude low temperature and we could essentially encase any drug we wanted into that polymer matrix. So really nice new property that's very nice for 3D printing but obviously requires a lot of approval to use that type of material. But as a concept, I think was really quite nice. The other option of, of implants, of course, is, is more traditional things like stents, for example. Uh, stents often have a drug eluting coating on, so it's a stent with a drug in it. And again, what's attractive about 3D printing is the potential of bringing all that manufacturing step into one phase. Traditionally, stents may be metal, or there are some that are polymer based, but there is a many step process to making that. So again, it's about can we do something unusual with 3D printing, new geometries, personalization, so it could be a certain shape or length. Then the question comes, you know, is there truly a clinical advantage for doing that? And those are the sort of research questions where we're currently at. In other words, is it worth the effort of doing the 3D printing? Is there a clinical gain? And that's always an important question to ask because it's not always the case. 
that personalization improves patient care. So that's why we've you know, got to make sure that we use the right process for the right outcome. Absolutely. So I have one final question for all of you. Um, we go around, take it in turns. But what excites you most about the field of 3D printing and why do you want to work in it? Simon, do you want to start? Yeah, I was just thinking about some of the things that Clive said earlier about how um, human ingenuity can really make uh, the most of technology. And I suppose that for the past hundred years, we've made amazing strides in the pharmaceutical sector with really basic technology. I mean, we're talking uh, tablets, capsules, and a few implants, and we've done amazing things in the field of medicine. And so for me, the most exciting thing about 3D printing is the sheer range of opportunity that it presents. Um, Clive, I think, said this as well, but you can print a whole range of materials, you know, right the way through from um, simple organic compounds up to metals. And so the technology allows this huge range of objects to be fabricated. And I don't even think as humans, we've had a chance to consider fully quite how big that range can be. So I suppose for me, looking back 100 years, we've done amazing things for human healthcare with very basic technology. I can only dream of what we might be able to achieve with some of these new technologies. Clive, do you want to uh, add anything? Well, I, I think anyone that works in research, you know, as, as Simon said, it's that thirst for doing something new, exploring new opportunities, however that's brought. And for 3D printing, I think for me, in addition to what Simon has said, if we just take the basic fact that around about half the medicines in this country are not taken correctly by patients. Now, that doesn't mean to say they're not necessarily taking them, but they might be taking them wrong. Half the medicines we give to people are not taken correctly. If we can make a small dent in that by making medicines which people feel more comfortable with, more personalised, 1% change is an enormous change. So for me, in addition to the excitement of research, which is what brings us into work every day, part contributing to that part where we do make a genuine difference to people's health, that's, you know, that's got to be a major driver. So. Absolutely. Patient adherence is uh, one of the issues we looked at in a recent podcast episode as well. And that idea of just trying to make people's experience of being a patient easier and making their health easier to access. Sheng, what about you? Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think Simon and Clive uh, finished off all my excitements. I just want to echo what Clive said. I actually talked to, we have all this uh, patient and public involvement groups. I remember I talked to a group which is a liver transplant patients. And when I explained to them about 3D printing the potential, you can put multiple medications you know, into one tablet. This lady, she did ask me, she said, would I be able to do that in my lifetime? Because she had liver transplant, she's diabetic, and she has you know, cardiovascular conditions. She sit every morning just taking tablets. She really desperate wants something could solve that issue. So finally, I would like to say in terms of excitement, I just want to say what potentially worries me for moving forward with 3D printing is really the regulatory. Um, you know, Clive, um, Simon mentioned about MHRA and Clive mentioned about the new regulatory framework for point of care manufacturing. I think it will be the limiting step for this will be able to reach the patient. So I think, you know, that the regulatory, the, the academia and industry really need to work very closely to move forward um, to allow the patient eventually could benefit from it. Great. Thank you. So unfortunately, that's all we have time to discuss today. 
Thank you, Sheng, Simon, and Clive for joining me and for your wonderful insights into the 3D printing of pharmaceuticals. It was fascinating to hear about the developments in additive manufacturing and its potential applications in personalizing medicine and potentially decentralizing production. On behalf of European Pharmaceutical Review, Anne Shenke, Simon Gaysford, and Clive Roberts, thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us for our next episode soon. Mm-hmm.